We've been uh, in the book of Moses, in the books of Moses for two months. Let's approach this book the way Jesus would have approached it. So before I read you God's word, let's reaffirm our commitment to God. And we're going to do it through uh, the ancient practice of reciting the first part of the Shema. And you're going to do after me. I'm going to give you a couple words in Hebrew. You repeat them. I'll give you a couple more. You'll repeat them. And then we'll go into English. So let us commit our lives before God again. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohehu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. Now remain standing because these are God's words, not mine. From the 20th chapter of Numbers, as the people complained to Moses about not having water, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And for the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. Be seated, please. You may recall when we began this series, we cited the tradition that said the Pharaoh's astrologers had told Pharaoh that the rescuer of the Hebrew people would meet his end in the water. And so you'll recall that one of the things Pharaoh decided to do about that was to take all the babies born to the Egyptians, the baby boys, and toss them into the Nile River. But of course that didn't work. And Moses led his people in opposition to Pharaoh to their freedom. Moses led his people in spite of the fact that the people rebelled against Moses with the golden calf. Moses led his people in spite of the fact that his family turned against him. And as a parent, I appreciate this. Moses led his people in spite of the fact that they whined to him continually. And this is the last episode that we come to of this whining. And Moses, who has led his people so well, leads them in such a way at this moment that God punishes him and says, you will not enter the promised land. For years, he's been their leader. He has taken them thus far. And he will not take them to their final destination. So the question I raised before us this morning is what gives? What did Moses do that was so bad that would make it to where he could not enter the promised land? Well, one possibility that immediately suggests itself is that Moses is just disobedient to God. God says, gather the people and speak to the rock. Moses gathers the people, speaks to the people, and then strikes the rock. Now, granted, earlier in their wilderness wanderings, when the people were thirsty, Moses, in fact, was was instructed to strike the rock, and he did. But at this point, he is not instructed that way. He's disobedient. 
Ray Vanderland makes an interesting point that in many ways the relationship between us and God is a love relationship. And it is so with the people of Israel. And in his great love for them, God rescued them out of slavery, married them in a sense in the Ten Commandments were the wedding vows, and then constructed a bridal chamber, uh, the tent of meeting, and they were to live happily ever after. But what we find here is that they rebel against God. And Ray said, if you want to know God's love language, you've probably heard that book of Chapman's book on love language, that you learn to figure out how your spouse feels like he or she is loved, and you practice those things, not necessarily the way you experience love. Well, God's love language, whether we like it or not, is obedience. That clearly indicates to God that we are in love relationship with God. And on this count, Moses fails. But who could blame him? The people had rebelled against Moses no less than 12 times by my count. Uh, From the time Moses appeared to them as an adult to lead them out of Egypt and then leading them all the way to the promised land. Moses has got to be frustrated. Perhaps Moses is even angry. Maybe anger is Moses' problem. And you can see by the illustrations uh, on the uh, sermon today and by the sermon's title that when I first looked at it, I basically diagnosed that that was Moses' problem. That he was angry, and and why not? These people keep turning against him at, at every point. And yet, interestingly, the Bible never says that Moses is angry at this point. Other times, Moses is said to be angry. One time, he's said to be white hot with anger. That was with the golden calf. But not this time. Now, there are sermons to be preached about anger, to be sure. The Bible is very clear in admonitions about anger. Basically, I'll sum it down for you, and that is that Uh, I'll sum it up that basically you're not going to accomplish God's good through anger. Typically is not going to get done. Our anger doesn't usually uh, contribute uh, toward what God needs done. And I think even as a parent, I've figured out that anger occasionally helps me win the battle, but ultimately uh, causes me to lose the war. Because those who love us and those who follow us uh, follow not because we lash out at them. As one rabbi pointed out, they, they follow because we lift them, we, we encourage them, and they're more likely to go where they need to go and where God calls them to go through lifting encouragement rather than through lashing anger. And Paul even warns the people about this. He says, be angry, but do not sin. And remember, Paul adds this, and never let the sun go down on your anger. Work through it. Get it straight. Well, anger may be a problem that Moses has here, but... It's not what the Bible says his problem is. So what is it? What what is the sin that's so bad? Well, I thought about another one, and that is that I've been in the desert, as Debbie pointed out, and in the uh, southern Negev, which very close to the northern Sinai, when I was there in September, it was 120 degrees. Started out at 107 and got a little warmer. And we were thirsty, but before we got off the bus, uh, our leader said this. He said, now normally I tell you to take two water bottles on a hike. Today I want you to take three. Three bottles. It's very hot. We're gonna, we won't be back to the bus for some time. And so we had always gotten away before with two bottles. And when he said two, we really had gotten away with one or one and a half. So I noticed a number of folks didn't take their third bottle. Well, we're about 45 minutes away from getting back to the bus. And a number of people are out of water. So our leader gathers us together and said, I told you to take three bottles. You only took two. Stay here and die. Well, of course the leader didn't do that. He said, there are a number of people, in fact, almost half, who are out of water. Do any of you have water that you can share with them? 
Our leader was not happy that we didn't listen, I am quite sure. But our leader was our leader because he cared about us. And what happens is that the people have legitimate issue, and that is you've got to have water in the desert. And Moses jumps on them because they whine, but they whine over a legitimate issue, and he doesn't seem to care about their thirst. He cares more about their attitude. One of the things I think that gets Moses in trouble is that he's just indifferent at this point to his people and to their needs. Now, our children can try us. We can try our children. Those who follow us can try us. And we can get pushed to a point, but we ever get to the point where we lose our compassion for those who love and trust us, we are no longer their leader. It is compassion more than anything else that sets us apart. And Moses seems to eject his compassion at this point. Maybe that's what did him in. But maybe it was something else. If you read the text closely, you notice this, that when God is lecturing Moses and says, I'm going to have to punish you for this, he said, because you did not honor me in the sight of all the Israelites. It seems like there's something going on that's bigger than Moses' relationship with Moses' own people. It's about Moses' relationship with God. And I, and I think I can see what's going on. If you go back to what happens, Moses gets the people together, which he's supposed to do. He speaks to them, which he's not supposed to do. So this is a clue. When he starts speaking, that's where he's in trouble. And listen to what he said. You rebels, why should we get water for you out of the rock? According to Moses, who delivers water in the desert? Moses. But who really makes water flow from a rock? Who really brings water and life and abundance? Is it not God? One of the things that has gotten Moses in such trouble is Moses has taken credit for what God does. Moses has substituted himself as a leader in the place of God. Now, this happens, believe me, all the time in ways that are much more subtle. We've had a couple graduations in our house in the last week, so I've heard two student graduation speakers and then two uh, adult commencement uh, speakers. And basically, I can sum up the messages for you. There's something like this. Here's what I did. Here's what you've done so far. Here's what you can do. And oh yeah, take a moment, turn around, and wave to your family and thank them. But the whole emphasis on the, on the speech was, all right, graduates, look what you've done over these four years or, or three years for one of them. Now go out and do these things. And it's all about you. Well, it's graduation, why not? But I wonder if sometimes in the world of academia, if there's no place, for the real cause of all of this. Is it really what they've done? Why are they still alive at 22 and other children are not? Why do they have the privilege of going to college and other children do not? I don't know, but I don't think it's because of them. There's something else going on. We so suddenly take God out of our picture and put ourselves in the place of God. Uh, The great uh, and late historian Stephen Ambrose toward the end of his career, turned his attention away from D-Day to uh, the activities of the Founding Fathers. And he made this observation a few years before he died. He said that America is the greatest country, he said, that ever was. And he said it's that way because of the Founding Fathers, because of leaders like Washington and Jefferson, and of course because of his book he had to go on and say, and Lewis and Clark. And then, as if to anticipate a possible objection from someone like me, he says, and God had nothing to do with it. Really. 
He is, of course, the late Stephen Ambrose. I wonder if he's changed his mind. So subtly and easily we take our place in, in the place of God and we move God out. And the Bible's full of warnings about that. There's a wonderful king in Babylon. Not wonderful, but great. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And one day he's just walking around in Daniel 4 and he said, Is there anything like Babylon that you know I've built? I mean, this is really cool. Could anybody else have even done this? Well, unfortunately, God heard what he said. And within five verses, King Nebuchadnezzar has lost his, his mind. He's out in the grass eating it like an animal. In Acts, the 13th chapter, Herod's son, King Herod, Herod, you know, is like George Foreman. All of his kids were, were named Herod. And his son, Herod, is on the throne in Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. And some people come to suck up to Herod because they need what he's got to offer. And so when he speaks, they cry out and say, oh, this is the voice of a god, not a man. And Herod doesn't, you know, he's thinking to himself, I guess, well, thank you very much. But he doesn't say a word. He doesn't protest. And the Bible says he is struck down, dead, and eaten by worms. Josephus, by the way, writing outside of the Bible as a historian, says that Herod died of a mysterious illness. Just drop dead. When we put ourselves in the place of God, it doesn't go over real big with God. I was a pastor in a small town some years ago, and, and the town was trying to raise money for an important project, and, and um, the churches together, and they came to one of the wealthier men in the town, and his response was, look, Nobody ever gave me anything. Nobody did anything for me. I made this myself. It's mine. No, you can't have any of it. And everyone in the town, I hadn't been there that long, told me that 40 years ago, this man was set up in business by a kindly old gentleman. They all knew that he was set up for success by someone else. But he had missed it. So suddenly we pull God out and others out and we put ourselves in. Moses did that and he was punished. But is that the reason? I don't know. Let me suggest one more thing. This is fascinating to me. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land, but oh, by the way, neither do 600,000 other people who escaped Egypt with Moses. They had sinned against God, we're told, in, in early in the book of Numbers when the spies came, uh, gave a report and said, oh, the promised land is too strong, we can't do it. And so they said, well, let's don't. And God said, all right, none of you will never set foot in it. 600,000 people who must have wondered if God still loved them, who knew that they were never going to make it into the promised land, the holy land, but who must have wondered, would they make it ever into eternity with God? And suddenly, when their leader who has fought Pharaoh, has conquered Pharaoh with God's help, has led them to freedom, has met with God face to face like nobody ever before, says the Bible, or after, when he doesn't get to go into the promised land, they know instinctively that God has not forgotten them. Because surely, when the gates of eternity are open, Moses is going to be first in line. And if Moses doesn't make it into the holy land, but makes it into eternity, then surely there must be some help and hope for them. Moses made a mistake. It was a whopper, whatever it was. But they knew it would not prevent Moses from being with God forever. 
And they must have then watched that and realized that the same was true of them. They had messed up too. But wherever Moses was, they were going to be right with him. You see, Pharaoh's astrologers said that Moses would meet his end by water. But I wonder, isn't in God's economy, isn't it true that this end for Moses is really a beginning? And so it marked a beginning for those 600,000 who would never set in the pro- foot in the promised land, but they would set foot in eternity.